until you understand his life, death, burial, and resurrection, until you understand he is fully God, fully man, until you understand he's more important than whoever lives at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, until you understand he's more important than Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos or going into outer space or China or India combined, until you understand he's more important than a sustainable car, until you understand he's more important than whatever it is on your horizon, homeschooling, rotating your grains, having chickens, until you understand that, you and I will live an off-kilter life. Well, hey there, if we have not yet met, my name is Alex Judd. I'm the founder of Path for Growth, and this is the Path for Growth podcast. Now, as a business, we exist to help impact-driven leaders step into who they were created to be so that others benefit and God is glorified. And this podcast is just another iteration of how that mission comes to life. We've said it so many times on this podcast before that you do not have to believe what we believe to listen to this podcast, to be a part of our program, to work with our coaches. And at the same time, you've got to be okay with the fact that we are not going to ignore what we believe. Uh, I am a Christian. I am a Christ follower. And our team, truly, it's in our mission statement. Our why is to glorify God. And for us, that's the God of the Bible. But here's the deal. I just think that there's so much power in being able to connect on what we're for, right? Which many of us agree with the same principles, even though we may not believe in the same God. And what's so cool is that that's happening right now. We have people in our program. We have people that listen to this podcast that don't believe in God. We've got a lot of people uh, from largely Brooklyn, New York, that are part of an Orthodox Jewish community. There's some of my favorite people on the planet that listen to this podcast and that are actively applying Path for Growth principles. We've got uh, representatives from all denominations of the Christian faith that are actively listening to this podcast. And so truly, that's the stance that we take is you do not have to believe what we believe. But you got to recognize that we're not going to ignore what we believe. And one of the principles that we teach within Path for Growth is that exposure to truth guards against insanity. I'm going to say that again because it's really important. Exposure to truth guards against insanity. If you haven't noticed recently, the world is kind of going insane. And how do we make sure that we don't just get caught up in going insane with the world around us. Well, I believe that we have to expose ourselves to what is true. And for us at Path for Growth, we believe that truth is found in the Bible. Now, if you don't believe that, that's totally fine. But I would tell you, you better know where truth comes from. And so uh, regardless of whether it's the Bible or a different document or something else, you need to make sure that you have something to lean on other than your feelings or your thoughts or what's convenient as your source of irrefutable, sustainable truth. But because our viewpoint is the Bible, one of the things that has started to come up in coaching conversations and in conversations uh, that we've been having around the Path for Growth community is that while many of us agree with the fact that, man, yeah, the Bible is what we need to consistently be exposing ourselves to as truth, uh, many people aren't doing it, even though they believe that it's a good idea. And that's why I just thought it would be so cool to have someone come on and talk about why the Bible is worth looking at whether you're a Christian or not. And then in the next episode, we're going to talk about how to get the most out of your time reading the Bible. And I'll tell you, whenever I had this idea, one person came to mind as the person that would be excellent to talk to about this. And I reached out to our COO, Zach, and I was like, man, I don't know if this would be possible, but it would be so cool to get Dr. Michael Easley. And uh, partially because Zach is a magician, but also partially because uh, Dr. Easley is just so generous 
with his time and is really passionate about this topic, we were able to sit down with him. Now, Dr. Easley is probably one of the most informed and studied teachers of the Bible that I've ever had the pleasure of meeting. He's the former president of the Moody Bible Institute. He's now the pastor of Stonebridge Bible Church. He's also been the pastor at several large and influential churches throughout the country. And the reason why I thought he would be so perfect for this episode and the next episode that we're going to do, which are really going to be focused on why the Bible and then how to read the Bible, is just because every time I've heard him speak, every time I've heard him teach, and every time I've heard him preach, I leave with a greater sense of passion and understanding of this powerful book. And I just thought to myself, I want that so bad for our audience. I want that so bad for the impact-driven leaders that we get to work with. So in this first episode, we're going to talk about why the Bible is a source of truth that regardless of what we believe, we should all be attending to. And to get into that topic, I thought it would be helpful to first talk about why so many people avoid the Bible. Number one, let's back up a step and say people don't read anyway. Uh, the, the readership level, I think now we're in the in the single percentiles of people in America that read anything. And with the advent of technology with phones and tablets and thumbing through a screen, uh, I doubt if you go to a church, you're going to see most people with a Bible to have their phone. No more tablets anymore. It's phones. And there's been some studies. We actually had a, a guest on our our podcast that did research on retention and phone screens and it's dramatically terrible Hmm. Um, so that said people don't read back to your precise question the bible is a big book it's it's uh overwhelming it's intimidating depending on if they grew up around the king james version or whatever it can be you know antiquated so there's a lot going on when a person looks at this big fat book and then of course there's the debates you know, is it true? Is it real? Is it a story? Is it myth? So, you know, as a guy that's been almost 45 years now trying to help people read the Bible, study the Bible, learn from the Bible, the the slope never gets easier, Alex. And it, we're going up, up, uphill. And um, so anyway, short answer, it's a big book. It's intimidating. And they don't know what it's about. Mm. We don't know the bigger picture. So, Man, and, and I mean, the way that I coincided with you it was a handful of years ago now, I heard you give a message and I remember just leaving kind of thinking like, oh my gosh, that guy is just a student of the Bible. Like you, I mean, it just seems like you take it very seriously and you study it deeply and you've done that for a long time. I'd love to know kind of before we jump in how this applies to everyone else, what is the story of your relationship with this book? Like, did you grow up being a student of this book or what is the story of how you kind of came to fall in love with it the way you are now? I was raised in a very devout Catholic home my parents went to mass every day of their married lives. Uh, they were married 62 some years before dad passed away, but uh, he traveled for a living. He went to a mass in every city. He was a salesman. Every city he went to mass first thing in the morning before his sales calls. We went to parochial schools, Catholic schools. So that there was no other thing. I, I compare myself to being raised Jewish. That's all we knew. Mm-hmm. Our church, our parish, our school, our friends were all Catholic. So in junior high, I got involved in drugs pretty heavily, and uh, I was probably 14 years old when I first got into drugs, and by 15, uh, actually 13, and by 15 years of age, had a bit of a crisis. Uh, I noticed all my friends were deadheads, and 
ironically, even though I was a drug user, I mowed yards. I was, you know, I, I, you know, we didn't get an allowance. We had to earn our money. I liked it. I did okay at school. You know, I clothed myself. I didn't look like a, a druggie, you know. <laughs> I call myself an intelligent drug user. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. So uh, I was able to manage life real well, but I got to this gestalt where if this is all there is, is getting high and hanging around with people that are low lowlifes, I need some help. Mm. Coinciding, um, there was a Sunday school class that I was attending, mandatory, called CCD in the Catholic Church. And um, a man who was teaching it, Ridley Fontenot, gave us a paperback copy of the Gospel of John. He wrote with white chalk on a green chalkboard the verse, John 3, 16. Mm -hmm. We read the story of Nicodemus. I had hair down past my shoulders, Alex. And I'm sitting in the back, 10, 9, 10 kids. None of us wanted to be there. We had to be there. Wow. Arms crossed. Listening to this story, reading that verse, and he underlines the word believe. And, uh, you know, memory fails. That's a long a long time ago. But I remember asking a series of questions, raising my hand. Are, are you telling me all I got to do is believe? And he said, what's the verse say? I said, what about confession? What about communion? What about contrition? What about keeping the sacraments? And he, and he said, what's the verse say? And I don't know if there was three or nine questions, but every time I asked, he goes, what does it say? And that moment, Alex, long hair, whole nine yards, I mean, I said, I believe. I believe. And something changed. I didn't understand. I didn't know what was going on. But at that moment, I trusted Christ, and my life changed. I got intoxicated, drunk, stoned three subsequent times, and each time was a disaster. Mm. And the last time, it was like, okay, Lord, I got it. I'm done with this, which meant disassociating most of my friends who were in the drug culture and now i start reading this book i don't know how to read it yeah. i don't know i don't know where to begin i'm i'm in 15 years old how, how what grade are you in ninth grade i don't know what to think but i'm reading it and i bounced around like a ping pong i got real involved in the catholic church and um by my first year in college I had some Christian roommates. I, I'd met a couple of Christians along the way. I mean, not to be in in delicate, but most Catholics believe a lot of things. But I don't know many that are truly confident in their salvation. I don't know many who mm. could articulate what it means to know God. They're Catholic in a way. My friends are Jewish in a way. My friends are whatever. So, not to be unkind, but I just I think that the message is lost in the rituals. That said. Um, so I go, I have college roommates and, um, they're Christians. And next thing I know, I'm in Bible studies and I'm reading like crazy. And I double dipped for two years. I went to the Catholic church to cover my obligation and I went to a Bible church. <laughs> there you go. You got them both covered. <laughs> well, and that's a, that's a long story for another time. But uh, the first time I heard someone teach the Bible, uh, I think I was a 11th grade, maybe 12th grade. And, uh, Dr. Dr. Robert Tolson, he's retired now in Arizona, Bob Tolson opened up the Bible, he was preaching through Matthew, ironically preaching the passage uh, to Peter, you are Peter and upon this rock I will build my church, which is a very important Catholic verse. And my mouth was hanging open for 45 minutes and when he stopped I went, don't stop, keep talking. Oh wow, you were captivated. And I tell people, having never tasted sugar, someone gave me a milkshake and I was immediately addicted and compelled, what does that book say? And so that began my journey. And by my first year of college, I, I was thinking about seminary, thinking about med school, a lot of different things rolling around. Uh, but the short answer is uh, I was exposed to it. I came to Christ uh, between uh, ninth and 10th grade. By 11th, 12th grade, I'm exposed to the Bible. And by college, I'm all in. I am in 
Bible studies. I don't know what I don't know. <laughs> and and ironically, by my second or third year of college, I'm leading a Bible study and teaching in a Sunday school class at a, at a local church there, which they should have never let me do. <laughs> That's great. That's great. Looking back yeah, on no, it. Oh, gosh. I'm glad they aren't on tape or recorded or YouTube. It'd be, you know, I hear oh. But the thing that uh, the thing that strikes me about that is it's like it's not like I mean you hear some stories now about countries that are um, kind of like oppressed by tyrannical rule and it's like I didn't have access to the Bible and then one day I gained access and right. now my life has changed forever. Yours is like the Bible was in front of you for years yeah, yeah. and then something shifted in ninth, tenth, eleventh grade yeah. where it's like the value, power, meaning of the book changed in your mind so much and yeah. and that I think that's the story of so many Americans today. It's like it, it's not that they don't read the Bible or don't connect with the Bible for lack of access. It's that something has to shift. What is it, do you think, that has to shift for someone to start to fall in love with this book? I think you have to have a need. I think people, prosperity and consumerism and wealth have created an emotional arrogance. And uh, one of a very close friend of mine looks at me and he thinks, well, Michael, that's your crutch. That's your crutch. I don't need God. I don't need the Bible. So the the downside of prosperity and materialism and consumerism is I can fulfill my immediate needs. Mm. The problem is, you know, what's the axiom? Uh, today's new car is tomorrow's trade-in and yesterday's junk keepers. I'm getting that wrong, but you know mm. what I'm, I'm talking about. And, and consumerism and materialism keep us driven. Technology, the new watch, the new phone, the new computer, the new tablet, the new, you know, electric car, that keeps us from stopping and the moment I have what is often called the dark, long, dark night of the soul, divorce, uh, bottom out, cancer diagnosis, your child breaks your heart, you get fired, you get slandered, maybe you get caught doing something, and all the props are knocked out, now I need God. Mm. So unfortunately, um, or maybe fortunately, I, now, now look at the big picture. If God's hand is sovereign over the universe, which I contend he is, and I don't like the overuse of the word story, but in our lifetime, God interrupts, if you will, that's not even the best word, interrupts us. I had, had a friend that came to Christ many years ago. He was agnostic, and he was a boy on a lake on a boat. And he swears God talked to him. Well, I don't know if God talked to him or not, but that message that at five years of age when he was in his 40s and I met him, he was a counterintelligence agency in the Army, and uh, he lied for a living. And he told me this story, and he said, God talked to me then. And I won't say his name. I called Joe. I said, Joe, I don't know if he talked to you then or not. He's talking to you right now. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> and this you. is his Bible, and you and I had this conversation, and he came to Christ. But he looked back on that moment, and people have different experiences. But, it, it, again, I'm prattling, which I do a lot. I would say until you know your need, mm. that you're a sinner, that you're despicable, that you're depraved, that you have no hope apart from God, and that you can do it in the flesh, and money, sex, and power, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life. Does that not describe Western mindset? Mm. I love. I want this thing, you know, money, sex, and power. I, I often use an illustration of three umbrellas, Alex, and I say all of our sins fall under lust of the flesh, lust of the eye, boastful pride of life, money, sex, and power. Mm. You you may have 
you know, pornography, sexuality, immorality, maybe it's acquisition, power, it's, it's money and wealth and prosperity, or it's power. And then there's all, often overlap, right? Well, that's right, <laughs> so, yeah. But that's, that's in the garden. That's right. When they're looking at this fruit to be what? Like God. That was the deception. So at the end of the day, man's condition is we're fallen, we're broken creatures, and until we stop and realize how bad off our situation is, I don't need God. Gosh. Well, and it almost seems like money, sex, and power, okay, what are all those things? They're instant gratification. And this book, it's a lot of things, but it seems like instant gratification isn't one of them. I often say that uh, all sin is an illegitimate means to a legitimate end. Oh, that's good. So God has provided sexual intimacy in the context of a marriage, but if I do it outside the marriage, it's an illegitimate means to a legitimate end. Same with power and money. There's a good use of money and a good use of power. If I misuse it, it's now sin. So interestingly, and that part of it, Alex, is sin is insatiable. If pornography satisfied, we we do it a few times and be done. But it's insatiable. Mm. Money is insatiable. Power is insatiable. And so when you look at man's condition, he's feverishly trying to you know fulfill money, sex, and power, which are hardwired into his soul. But he's trying to do it in an illegitimate way. Whereas God's provided a legitimate need. And to your precise point. It's a longer game in the Bible, but it's a real game. Um, we, Cindy and I taught marriage conferences for almost 20 years and uh, all over the country, and um, we would tell this story. I forget the woman. I forget everything. But it was a <laughs> quote I used to use, and she said, marriage is a long journey. Most couples stop before they come to the first vista. Mm. And Cindy and I, at 42 years this year of marriage, uh, Congratulations. Boy, thank you. God's been kind. Boy, have we seen some vistas. Mm. Hard? Absolutely. Hauling up those mountains with a full backpack with selfishness and no money and four children and infertility and health issues and back surgeries. Uh, wine, 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 wine. But boy, when you get to the vista, God has carried us this far. So anyway, um, yeah, again, I prattle. For no, I, I think that's really, really helpful. And it's kind of in that context that, okay, it's delayed gratification. It's a hard book. It's an intimidating book that I think one of the things that blocked me in spite of all those things from really getting into it is I don't know that for a long time I actually knew what it was. Yeah, I, I looked at the Bible as a book and... Every time I've heard you teach, you look at it very different than a book. So can you just right. answer that most basic question of what sure. is it? What sure. is the Bible? Uh, so we did a series called The Big Book. Uh, Hannah Seymour, my executive producer, director, boss, also my daughter. She and I sat down. She and I sat down and I said, I want to do this big book series, Hannah. And she said, well, I think you're crazy, but it's probably good. And so I taught through all 66 books of the Bible one Sunday at a time, excepting <laughs> one I did. I said second and third John together because they're, you know, half a page. But um, I still feel bad about that. Though. <laughs> still some resting guilt on that. <laughs> but but uh, the, the overarching thing was how do we help people who have no concept what this book is begin to get their arms around it? And I didn't do what most Bible surveys, date, time, author, etc. cetera, were on the map. And I said, no, if a person has never read this, what are they going to get? So, for example, the first five books were called the Pentateuch, Penta meaning five in Greek, and you know Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That 
technically was the Jewish Bible. They had no other texts until much, much later. Mm -hmm. And so then you have to differentiate between narrative and wisdom literature, psalms, which fall into a category of wisdom and prose. Then you get into books that are prophetic. You have major prophets, minor prophets. Major prophets just mean they're longer. They're not more important. It's not like this guy was the president. This <laughs> oh, guy he's was a the bigger deal right than now. that guy. No, he just wrote minor. a lot more. Yeah, <laughs> and then and you have what's the intertestamental silence, intertestamental between the last book of the old and the new. Then you have four gospel records, which are four different perspectives on the person and work of Jesus Christ. Then you have the book of Acts, which is the story after Christ told them, remain in Jerusalem until I send the Holy Spirit upon you, and you will be my, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Samaria, Judea, and their remotest part, singular, part of the world. So in Acts chapter 2, we have this thing called Pentecost. So the Holy Spirit comes, and everybody thinks they're drunk, and it's fulfilling the new covenant from Jeremiah 31. What that means is I no longer need the rabbinic tradition and the law to tell me now I have the person of God indwelling me in the Holy Spirit. And this blows up the first century. And it's such an interesting story, Alex, because people miss the fact when Pentecost began, 3,000 people came to believe in Jesus Christ that day. Yeah, and it, and it's like a historical account of that. That's and, crazy. And the Romans are freaking out, and the Jews are freaking out. And uh, I love that passage in chapter two: Parthians, Scythians, Medes, etc., all hearing themselves in their own language. And people totally miss the context. They're hearing what's your name, what's your uh, what's your lineage, German, Irish. What's your German, German? Primarily German. So you're speaking German. I'm speaking Italian. And we're understanding each other. That was the miracle. Not tongues the way it's typically taught. They're dialectos. So you're speaking German. I'm speaking Italian. And that's why people said, how can they understand each other? They're all talking in their mother tongue. And nobody knows what in the world's going on. So this miracle began. And then they didn't do what God told them. He said, you'll take it to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and their most part of the earth. So what does God do? He scatters the church with this wonderful thing called persecution. And there's a word in the in Acts that the church was scattered, diaspereo. It's the same word used for sowing seed. Mm. So it felt like persecution was to get them out of Dodge. Mm. And now fast forward, we have the Apostle Paul. And we have those maps in the back of the Bible, the missionary journeys. And so these are the continuation of what God promised a long time ago, codified in the new covenant, explained in Acts chapter 2 what's going to happen. And so Paul begins these missionary journeys. He's beat. He's flogged. He's running out of town. They have these huge, quote, revivals, close quote. I mean, he's changing the world. And, oh, by the way, before that happened, he's trying to arrest Christians and, you know, put them in jail. He, he, he basically sanctioned the murder of Stephen. So fast forward, the Pauline corpus of literature, the, all the letters Paul writes comprise everything from Acts in your Bible, pretty much, Romans, 1 Corinthians, etc. Then we have a few outliers. We have Jude. We have Peter. Uh, we have John in the epistles. And then we have the Revelation. So a shorter answer is, uh, and I, I really push back on this God's story because I think when people hear story, Alex, they hear like bedtime story, mm. fictitious story, <laughs> yeah. right? This isn't that. Right. Yeah. Because it's an overused word. It's not yeah. a bad word. That's so true. But this is God's revelation mm. 
to a fallen world that your condition, there is no plan B, your condition is only found, there's only remedy is found, is here. There's one cure for spiritual cancer. You can do any treatment you want. God bless you. You can, you know, go to counseling. You can do, uh, you know, homeopathic. You can have a farm and raise chickens. You can do whatever you want. You can't solve your spiritual cancer apart from the person and work of Jesus Christ. From front to back, this book is a book revealing Jesus Christ is the one who loves you, died in your place on your behalf instead of you to pay for your sin so you can live the way you were designed eternally with him. Gosh, that's so powerful. And and I think um, that's why I'm so excited because the second episode in this series is going to be about how, like how to act in that context. How do we read it? But that lays such a foundation that it's like, man, when you describe it that way, I look at it and I'm like, I'm more fascinated by it. It's like, this thing's great. Like, and when you start to treat it as though like this stuff actually happened, it's like, yes. this is insane. Yeah. Like, yeah. this is wild. Okay. So two part question. Why is it something worth reckoning with if you're Christian, and then why is it something worth reckoning with if you're not Christian? Let's start with the second one. For a person that doesn't believe or has, you know, and, and I've been around this. This isn't my first rodeo, Alex. People are hurt. The church has hurt them. They've been through trauma. Their parents divorced. They were real involved in a church, and maybe they were abused in a youth group. There's a lot of damage in people's lives. So um, one, one of the lines I often tell people and I've told myself is maturity is when you stop blaming your past you own your present and you plan your future mm. and you can have been an abused child by an uncle or beaten by your father whatever and if you live as that victim it's very difficult to grow beyond that not minimizing what happened so first of all it's it's you know I got I got to leave my past behind I have to own my present Turn the page. I got to own my present. What can I do? I mean, this is your world, how you're trying to help people. This, These are the resources you have. You don't have these, but you got these. What are you going to do? Stop blaming the past, own the present, and more importantly, plan the future. So for a person that doesn't know God, doesn't believe in the Bible, it's an arcane book, it, it hates women, it promotes slavery, it hates gays, you know, the Bible remains the number one selling book of all time but they won't put it on the New York Times list for obvious reasons. But it still outsells any other book in any format, which is interesting. Mm. Um, so it's the revealed word of God. So for the person that has never looked at it, and we'll talk about that, I presume, in our next time together, but there are ways to start that aren't intimidating. Mm. There, there, you got to memorize the multiplication table at some point in life. <laughs> you got to learn your ABCs. You got to learn noun, verbs, and adjectives at some point in life. Uh, maybe diagram a sentence if you're really fortunate. But all I have to say, it's a systematic way of learning that's not that hard. And here's the cool thing: you got your whole life to do this. Mm. You're not going to grow. I mean, I, I've been studying this book now for goodness, fifty years, maybe more now, and I feel like I know. 10% of it. My professors, the true scholars who taught me scripture, I mean, you know, I, I would, I will never be them. Stop. That's not the objective. The objective is who you are, who you are, who I am, and how do I read the text, and what is God saying to me? What did he say then? 
What is he saying now? How to apply it? So I would just encourage you, and we can talk about what to read. For the believer in Christ, I think he, she has to come to terms with, is God important or not? Hmm. Back to your consumer, my consumerism, materialism, I mean my rules and reigns, my feelings, my experiences, my hopes, my dreams. And frankly, you and I live in Middle Tennessee, which is almost, um, not to be unkind, but it's almost a cult of prosperity and success and business. They're great things. At the expense of your relationship with the eternal God, it's a problem. So the Christian who's busy with you know getting married, having children, you know, paying for schools, whatever you're doing, buying cars, saving money, being debt free, all these wonderful things, those are all temporal. What's eternal? Mm. So I, I think for the Christian, and something that God has you know kind of rubbed my nose in the last ten, twelve weeks, Alex has been. You know, as a Bible teacher, I'm looking at a room of people that are on this bell curve of never read the Bible and probably know more about the Bible than I do, mm-hmm. and all points in between, right? Mm-hmm. And so when I look at that audience, so to speak, it's it's not an audience, but just illustratively, when I look at those people, I'm thinking, where are they on this spectrum? And I ask an answer. I try to ask and answer the question: What do they need to hear from God? And uh, That's what I've been doing for years, and I've I've kind of erased that model and said, you know, maybe I need to rethink this. You need to see who the person of Jesus Christ is, hmm. because until you understand his life, death, burial, and resurrection, until you understand he is fully God, fully man, until you understand he's more important than whoever lives at sixteen hundred Pennsylvania Avenue, until you understand he's more important than Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos or going into outer space or China or India combined, until you understand he's more important than a sustainable car, until you understand he's more important than whatever it is on your horizon, homeschooling, rotating your grains, having chickens, until you understand that, you and I will live an off kilter life. And so my, my, my new message, newer message to myself and to our little church here and through our, the ministry of In Context has been, you need to see Christ more clearly the way the Bible explains him. Mm. And that to me for a Christian will begin, why should I read this book? Yeah. I heard, I believe it was someone that was a non-believer once that uh, they were talking about the gospels. And I loved how they put this because it actually opened my eyes as someone that as, that is a believer to, to the personhood of Jesus, not just the divinity of Jesus. Because he's like, 2,000 years ago, there's this guy walking around that can be historically proven that's walking up to people saying things like, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He's like, what the hell is that? <laughs> right? And yeah. it's like, that's how we should kind of look at this, it seems like. It's like, right. it, I mean, it's if you actually read it as though he was real, it's a pretty astonishing thing, regardless of whether you believe he yeah. was the son of God or not. Well, I believe it was Mahatma Gandhi who said, I would have become a Christian if it were not for Christians. Hmm because he was so captivated by the life of Christ. And, and you know, we look at Gandhi and Gandhi-esque kind of philosophies and we go, yeah, he was kind and he lost a sandal getting on a train, so he threw the other sandal on the ground and someone said, why'd you do that? And he goes, well, one is no, of no use to me, but two might help somebody else. I mean, he was this perfect guy, right? <laughs> this humanitarian, wise guy who walks around in a robe. He's gone, he's, you know, he's Gandhi, he's Gandalf, you know, we want to talk to him. Jesus Christ, so outstrips any combination of human reverence 
that we look at these men and women and we revere them. And, and that is a failure on the part of the local church. It's a failure on parents who don't help their kids learn to read the Bible. But I'm not in a blame game. What do we do now? Mm. And so, you know, this book, and, and the great thing about technology, you got a, a fancy tablet there. I got a tablet, a phone, and a watch, and all this stupid stuff. <laughs> it's there in two clicks. I can be on Bible.org and Bible Hub. I can be anywhere. We don't take advantage of it. Mm. So for the Christian, um, we did a series not long ago called Get Your Nose in the Book. And I talked to all these subject matter experts that I've known for years, and some are new, newer friends. But we all are opining the lack of reading the Bible. Scott Lindsay, who works with uh, Logos Bible Software, Faith Life Bible, dear friends of mine, uh, he's uh, Scott's a remarkable guy, and he cited a study. If you read the Bible once a day, once a week, it has no effect. Twice a week, no effect. Three times a week, no effect. Four times a week, something happens. People are less anxious. People are more inclined to go to church. People are more inclined to want to read the Bible. And it just goes up from there. So and that's uh, like data that says that. Yes, like, this, this is data. That's, ins- that's really remarkable. Data. It that's- is remarkable. But it reminds us, you know, morning by morning, it reminds us about his mercies are new every morning. Uh, you know, the Psalms, sometimes people talk about the law in the Old Testament is hard and legalistic and difficult. David said, I love your law. I meditate on it day and night. Now, did that mean all day long he thought about it? No, it meant he, he went back to the well again and again and again and again through the day. And this is a remarkable parallel. When you look at Bible characters, who were keeping a close relationship with God and his word, they didn't get into trouble. The moment they get their eyes off the word of God and the God of creation, they get in trouble. One of my favorite stories, uh, the book of Judges, of course, is the, are these cycles of sin. Mm. There's sin, God brings judgment. It's a horrible book. There's some pretty hard stuff it's in It's a that horrible book. book. I love it. It's a horrible <laughs> book. Because it's, it, it's true to humanity. And their sin is so bad and so odious, God finally says, enough. And so the temple's destroyed, the goods are carried away, the period of judges is horrible, it ends in civil war. Each of these judges comes up at a certain time, and as they devolve, we know the story of Samson, right? Samson and Deliah and all the, the you know, the, if, if you're as old as I am, there are all these movies made with Samson and Deliah, Hedy Lamar and Victor Mature. Anyway, <laughs> but the story goes, uh, he's this guy, he's huge, he's strong, God gives him power, and he abuses it for himself. But there's all these little hints because he's, he, he's going on this journey and he sees a woman he sees a carcass of a lion he sees these things and he goes out of his way to pursue what he saw Hmm. and the text is telling us pay attention to what you look at Hmm. and full circle the story what happens to samson Hmm. they poked his eyes out the very thing that he was using to direct his life that's fascinating. And it, and it just reveals, again, what you look at, the affections of your heart. So back to reading, you know, if you get up every morning, 5, 10, 20, 30 minutes, uh, we can talk about that again in more detail next time. But I, I think we, 
we grossly underestimate our time in the Word and how it will affect our life for good. It's And you said it a moment ago, it's delayed gratification, but I would say it's more of a discipline. You're not going to go run a marathon tomorrow no matter how well-rounded you are as an athlete. You're going to train uh, what some of the fastest training programs for a marathon are like four months. Mm. And some of the better ones are nine to ten months. Well, and that's one of the biggest lessons that I think – I'm so grateful for in working with, I know it's someone that you know, Dave Ramsey, is just the value of compounding. Like, it's like, you're not going to become a gospel theologian in one day, but boy, you can make progress today in 15 minutes every day for five years. You look up and it's like, man, you could do something. What happened? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Okay, before we close out this section, we're specifically talking right now to the leader. And we always say, if someone depends on you, then you are a leader. So sometimes it's leader in the home. Sometimes it's leader in the community. A lot of times it's leaders in the marketplace that people are depending on them and looking to them as a model. Why is it important for that person to have a rhythm and routine and habit of reading the Bible? I read a book years ago called Leadership and Self-Deception by the Alban Institute, very interesting group but it's it's sort of a lencioni story where it's a kind of a you know they Parable. tell a story of story yeah. yeah but um it, it uh if you worked for me and i was your boss uh, and i don't like you oh gosh okay <laughs> you know it i know it all the people that work around you know it everybody knows michael really doesn't like alex but michael tries to pretend he likes alex but there's innuendo there's neuroscience there's cortisol in the conversation all these things are going on and alex knows the boss doesn't like me it's a remarkable and very uh, exposing little book but i i use that to answer your question to say a, a man or a woman who's a leader if he or she is in the word and god is working in their life again i'll use the phrase you greatly underestimate how powerful that is uh imperceptible influence really is more important than perceived influence. We can put goals and objectives on a list, and this is our company, this is our product, this is our service. We're going to do this. We're going to have smart goals. We're going to measure them. God bless you. If that person has a deep core, they're not anxious. They're patient. They're wise. They're thoughtful. Yeah, they can stand their ground and say, no, you know, even a difficult boss who has integrity, we all respect. We all respect. I mean, Dave Ramsey is a dear friend. Dave is a tough customer, (laughs) but you respect him. Mm. And it's like, okay, I'm going to pay attention. I may not initially agree or like what he's saying. I better listen more carefully. And am I reacting to the leader or am I reacting to the fact that it changes the way I do things Mm. or the way I want to do things? I mean, people today, this is your world, Alex, People who work for someone else want to do things their way. And so a leader has a very challenging role to be kind and not dictatorial. And, you know, the customer is now the hero and all this kind of stuff. Great. Go for it. At the end of the day, if you've got a core, you're grounded in Scripture, you're exposing yourself to it every day, and you're going to be convicted. If you read Proverbs 14 today, you're going to be convicted by at least five or six strokes, right? <laughs> well, talked, and if you're not, you're probably doing it wrong. Well, yeah, yeah. Well, I, it, yeah, it doesn't take that much. I, mean, <laughs> I talk too much, and it's my bane. 
a man of many words unavoidably lies. Oh, I hate that verse. Of <laughs> um, and, and so the good part of that is, and then taking it as a leader, your transparency with what you're learning gives you so much more gravitas than financial remuneration or public acc- accolades or promotions or incentives. Those are good, but they're gone tomorrow. They're gone tomorrow. A That's bonus right. is gone tomorrow. What have you done for me lately? No one says, we got the greatest bonus seven years ago. What's going to happen this Christmas? Mm-hmm. That's what they're worried about. So people are people. And I would just say your walk with Christ as a leader will have a more profound effect. And I will call it imperceptible influence. You don't know how God's going to use it. Last thing I'll say on this, for I, I, I pick up trash. If I walk across a church parking lot or I go in the church bathroom and it's messy, I'll take a bunch of paper towels, I'll wipe down everything, I'll pick up the pieces on the ground, put them in the trash can, push the paper towels down in the trash can, I'll do all that. I get caught once in a while doing this. Well, I didn't know the pastor was a janitor, ha, 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 you know. And I don't do it for – I do it because, A, I'm obsessive-compulsive. It drives me crazy. And, B, I'm thinking about when someone walks in this restroom, it's disgusting. And I don't like that for anybody else. So I take 90 seconds. Now, fast forward. I'm embarrassed to tell you the number of people that will tell me, you know, I like your Bible teaching, blah, blah, blah. You know what really impressed me? I saw you clean a bathroom one time. Imperceptible influence. What you think you're doing may or may not, hopefully it does, but it's the imperceptible part. Are you kind? Mm. Are you compassionate? Are you forgiving? Do you own your mistakes? Goodness, I'm sure you you train your folks. You got to say I was wrong and you need to name it. I was wrong. I was mad. I I was anxious. Forgive me, Joe for blowing up in front of these other peoples. I didn't respect you. That was wrong on my part. You know, a, a real true mea culpa done properly will get far more results than a big vision and a big pound of table and, you know, get mad at people and fire 15% of your base on a text <laughs> message because you're dumb. But anyway, I'm prattling again. So I, I would say you grossly underestimate your walk with Christ has an, an aura about it, not to sound too mystical, because if you're being transformed by God's word, God's spirit, God's people, it people will see this. Mm. Well, and that's, I love that phrase, imperceptible influence, because I have literally seen leaders, and I've seen this with myself, that start applying themselves to reading the Bible daily, and they will say, something with my people has changed, and I, I don't even know what it is. I, I've just started doing this, and it's like, okay, well, now we know what it is. It's imperceptible influence. Like, yeah. you've changed, and that's changed everything else, and it was done not by you. It was done by the power of the Holy yes. Spirit with inside you. Um, okay, man, I'm so teed up and pumped for now to get into the practices of all of it. Before we close out this episode, though, I know people are going to want to stay in touch with you and everything that you're doing, so what is the place that you would point them to? I know the resource that y'all put out that has been most helpful for me is your podcast in right, context. Right. Um, but I'm sure they can find the sermons that you preach on every Sunday. Here so on, on uh, if you're a podcast user, we have uh, Michael Easley in context. We uh, beginning in January of 22, we'll have three different podcasts. We have an Ask Dr. E and we have sermons and then we have interviews. And so uh, my executive producer, Hannah Seymour, oversees all that. But um, just if you put my name in your search engine, you'll find Heresy galore. 
<laughs> I love it. Very good. Excellent. Well, thank you for your time today, and we're excited for round two. My privilege, Alex. Okay, so there you have it. That's part one of this two-part conversation. And really, our goal for that first part was to talk about why the Bible is worth paying attention to. And I'll tell you, you do not need to wait to part two to get started, right? It would be a wonderful thing to dive into either Proverbs or Psalms or another book that you're deeply passionate about and interested in right now and just start establishing a habit of reading a little bit every single day. Remember, the things you do daily create the person and create the leader that you become permanently. So don't just do this as a willpower thing. Do it as a habit thing and start creating rhythms and routines where you are exposing yourself to truth. Because what did we say at the beginning? Exposure to truth guards against insanity. We'll put all the resources that Dr. Easley mentioned towards the end of that conversation in the show notes of this episode. And make sure you're subscribed to the podcast because here soon we're going to be releasing part two of this series where we get really into the nuts and bolts in the practicality of how to best read the Bible. So subscribe to the podcast, rate and review it if you haven't yet. We always read those reviews and those are so helpful for me as the host of this program. Remember, we're rooting for you. We want to see you win. My strength is not for me. Your strength is not for you. Our strength is for service. Let's go, let's go, let's go. Let's go.